Let's talk of mind reading. The mind is not a book to be opened at will and examined at leisure. Thoughts are not etched on the inside of skulls to be perused by an invader. The mind is a complex and many-layered thing, Potter. Snape. I am a multidimensional fractal of consciousness currently expressing as a human being in the most authentic way that we can imagine. Always remember to take what resonates and leave the rest. Welcome to Mental Magic. Uniqueness, the nerve to be yourself, the ability to move through the world with kindness. These are the qualities I cherish and admire most in everyone I call a friend. And my guest today could write the book on what it means to embody each one of these qualities. I mean, actually, he did write a book about it, and it's called Sex, God, and Rock and Roll, and I highly suggest you check it out. But I first heard Barry Taylor speak in 2016 when he was a guest on Rob Bell's podcast where he shared, among so many other things, his more than fascinating conversion story to Christianity. In that podcast episode, I learned of his past as a roadie for some pretty incredibly popular musicians and his journey to eventually becoming a professor of theology and culture at a really well-known theological seminary in California. But mostly in listening to his story, I was so intrigued by the way he Christianed. He was one of the first people who I could point to that was Christianing in a way that felt similar to the way that I wanted to hold my beliefs, engage with my faith, and interact with others around me. I know this sounds completely convoluted and complicated, which is basically in line with the nature of this episode, but essentially, the first time I heard Barry speak, I understood that the work that he was doing out in the world resonated with who I wanted to be and with what I wanted to create going into my future. So when I had the opportunity to actually meet Barry in person three years later when I traveled to the Wake Festival that I'm always raving about in Belfast, which is in Northern Ireland, I couldn't really process what my reality had become. I remember that night that I met him. It was the first night of the festival, so I went up to sign in at the registration desk, and in all of my nervousness, I clocked that he was standing next to the guy that was checking people in. And so after I was asked my name, I was also asked to make a decision about what I wanted to do on one of the days since there was an overlap of activities in the festival schedule. And in <laughs> and so with all of my nerves and completely being thrown off by the question, I answered in the most sincere way that I could, but apparently my answer was a little too honest and everybody around me started laughing, including Including Barry, so I immediately felt myself get white hot with embarrassment, and I realized that they had just misinterpreted what I said. <laughs> but naturally, I wanted to fade into the back of the room and possibly find a way to just escape so I can be by myself. But before I could disappear, Barry looked at me and he asked me if I had come to the event with anyone. And when I told him I was there alone, he invited me to come sit with his friends. And And so from the moment I met Barry, he 
he just has this ability of making me feel welcome and safe. And I believe it's because he has this insatiable curiosity about the nature of humanity with an incredible knowledge base of facts and history and opinions. But most of all, he is the embodiment of pure kindness and compassion and grace for not only himself, but for others. So I am completely honored and still at times completely amazed that I got to interview him for this podcast, but I'm even more grateful that I get to call him one of my really good friends. So please enjoy Barry Taylor. Hi loves, welcome back to another episode and today's guest is Barry Taylor and I don't know that he needs an introduction, but Barry, if you can go ahead and introduce yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Hey Chris, I'm I'm Barry Taylor and I'm happy to be here and I'm talking to you from London and what else do you want to know? I don't know. I mean, introductions are always, don't you find like self-introductions like a really weird thing? So awkward. you're You're supposed to say, you know who you are usually by what you do or don't do, you know what I mean? Which mm-hmm. for me is always, always on the move anyway. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm in the middle of changing my life yet again. How's that? Perfect. <laughs> so the first question that I asked all of my guests is, what does it feel like to be you? <laughs> That's almost as easy as answering the introduction to yourself. Right. What does it feel like to be me? Wow. Well, the, I, I suppose it depends on the given day. I suppose curious, mm. I think, is perhaps where I start. I feel curiosity always kind of the energy of that, you know, like what is out there in life and in the world and what is there to, uh, to discover um, that's, that's that's the easy <laughs> that's the easy bit of being me, perhaps. Um, the other side is, you know, the usual complications that come from just growing up in a world like ours, you know, or mm-hmm. or any world where you're kind of trying to find your sense of who you are continually against perhaps where you've come from and what you've been exposed to and surrounded by both, you know, I don't mean that necessarily negatively or positively, but there are always those those challenges of the things that we take on and then the things that we need to shake off. And I, I do feel at times that if a snake doesn't lose its skin, it dies. Mm-hmm. But there's a really interesting process of shedding skin I think for we humans, that isn't always an easy thing to do, to let go of where we've come from in order to move on or move into something else mm-hmm. in our life. So I think to me sometimes feels like the yearning to shed skin and then the struggle to actually shed it. I don't know if that's too existential or something. But, it but, makes uh, perfect sense to me. But, um, you know, I, I mean, I think... What it feels like to be me is probably pretty much what it, and it feels like for lots of people. You know, you feel the complexity of who you are at times. It was funny. I was I was trying to explain, as I said, I was just in Italy with some friends, but I was trying to explain 
to somebody kind of what I do, which is never easy when you're trying to translate it into another language. Because I mm-hmm. could say, oh, well, you know, I, I do theology or I do philosophy and stuff like that. But that can be sort of taken too, almost too literally. And they, they kind of think mm-hmm. you're something that you're not, you know. Right. So I, <laughs> just to make it all the more difficult for them, I said, I chase complications. <laughs> nice. And and what I meant by that was I do think that life is quite complicated and full of complexity. Mm -hmm. And it's important, I think, to acknowledge that about all of life. And I said, you know, I chase complications and I don't necessarily want to simplify them. Mm. Because one of the things that I, I suppose it feels like to be me is I'm resistant to simplification the reduction of things to sort of these nice little manageable sound bites of, you know, how you can fix it all or how you can sort it all out. I just think there are complexities that haunt our lives all the time, mm-hmm. both externally and internally to us as as people. So I guess what, what does that mean in terms of what does it feel like to be me? Then you're going to feel really complicated if you're in my skin for a couple of <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way about me. You're going to feel a confliction about pretty much everything and anything, and not always in a negative way. You know, mm-hmm. that's the thing is I'm prone to melancholy, but I'm also kind of easygoing. I'm an easygoing mel- melancholy. <laughs> it's such a hard question to even answer because, you know, like you said, it's just. It's a great question, though, because it really yeah. does. Or at least I, I like to sort of go, well, I mean, I could go, oh, yes, yeah, so I feel this or feel that. But I think there's the, a question like that. It's an interrogation, really. Mm. It's a way of asking yourself a question that you don't often ask yourself. Yeah. And so we met probably three years ago now um, at Wake in Belfast. And since then, I mean, you're such a multifaceted person who just, I feel like I can talk to you about any topic and you'll have something to say and it's going to be profound in some way where I'm going to be thinking about something (laughs) that I haven't thought about before. And this past week, you were also part of GCAS, which is a graduate study program. And you gave this talk that I was fascinated by and wanted to dig into and ask you a couple more questions about it. The topic was strangers, villains, and gods. And to me, what it really was like an investigation of how we deal with the strange other and how we relate to the other. Now, if you can give us a brief summary of that talk that you gave. Yeah, it was based on a book by this philosopher, Richard Kearney. The book is called Strangers, Gods and Monsters. And it's about, as you said, it's really about his sort of argument is that strangers and gods and monsters aren't just the subject of fantasy or myth, Mm -hmm. but they're actually a part of our cultural and collective unconscious and how we handle and understand the nature of those things goes a long way to determining how we deal with the other and with otherness in general. And part of the book is also actually a little bit of a a dig at deconstruction and sort of postmodernism and stuff like that, because 
even though Kony's done a lot of work with Derrida and people like that, his real interest is in maintaining certain differences between God and Satan, if you like. He, he doesn't want to collapse that into, oh, you know, some amorphous kind of blob. He says at one point, you know, that so one of the dangers with deconstruction is everything sort of lives and exists in the dark, you know, without light. And he says, you know, you sort of actually need to bring things into the light for the sake of clarity so that you can actually really understand the other who already is inside of us because mm-hmm. that's the real focus. So he talks about these these three sort of figures, the stranger, the god, and the monster. And they're all, they're limit experiences where we come into contact with something that brings us to the limit of ourselves. And at that limit, we also have the opportunity to acknowledge and recognize that what we see in the stranger, the god, or the monster is also in us. So it collapses, it collapses difference while sort of maintaining difference. Mm-hmm. If, that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and so he sort of talks about strangers are the it can you know it can be anything from alien creatures in you know films to refugees at the american border or at the dover beach in here in london you know it's the stranger is the person who is not us mm-hmm. on whom we place all of our fears and prejudices and biases. So the stranger has always been with us. You know, it's in the Bible, you know. I mean, it's the the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, it, there's a classic thing, the, the story of the guy who's beaten up and left naked, so he's unidentifiable, but he has to be, you know, he's a stranger to the religious people. They can't identify him. He's other. Mm-hmm. And because he's the other, he is untouchable. Or, you know in the Old Testament, or, you know, the Greeks, or everybody's got enemies. You know, there's always a stranger threatening your border. It can be people seeking asylum, refugees, a different tribe, a different culture, a different people group, you know, a different gender. I don't know. You know, there's that. And then gods are the, the figures, the things that we kind of kneel before. And those can be literally the kind of idea of metaphysical gods, you know, literal gods, you know, the gods of the Greeks, the Romans, you know, polytheistic Hindu gods or the gods of Judeo-Christianity or Islam or something like that. But it could also be whatever it is that we give ourselves to culturally. So it could be economics or the god of certainty or safety or productivity or any number of things. So again, it's a sort of limit experience and it it challenges us to kind of think through what it actually is that we surrender and kneel before. And again, it's a, a reminder that what we condemn perhaps in others, we also have existent within us. We might kill off metaphysical gods, but that doesn't mean we don't worship things. Mm-hmm. And then there are the monsters, and the monsters are quite often the things that threaten our existence in a slightly different way to the the stranger. They're the sort of self 
sometimes the self-generated monstrosities of the world that we make. You know, it's like a sort of classic example probably would be like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm-hmm. you know, which was written at a time when the Industrial Revolution was changing the world and science and medicine were kind of replacing faith and alchemy. And there were at least the sense that there could be horrifying outcomes, you know. So you get this monstrous person that's made up of all of these other bits of dead people and it kind of becomes this monstrous version of a a human. Or it can be, you know, the ghosts that that exist in our society. Uh, It can be monsters. I mean, you know, on old medieval maps, they used to, like, in uncharted areas, they used to just put a drawing of some weird creature and it would and then write, there be monsters. You know, this warning that when you go there, the unknown, the uncertain and things like that, those tend to be the, the monstrous elements of life. So he sort of takes these ideas that we think are just old and mythic mm-hmm. and goes, well, just because we live in the 21st century, doesn't mean that these figures don't exist anymore. Right. They're very much alive and they're very much real and they exist within our cultural unconscious. And, and what's interesting, of course, is that if you go around the world, people have different strangers, mm-hmm. they have different gods, and they sometimes have the same strangers and, and the same gods, and they also have different monsters. I mean, it's a very interesting thing when you go to particular countries if you sort of travel and you look around and you see what they find monstrous mm-hmm. you know like i mean i think i might have mentioned in the seminar that in japan on emergency vehicles they have like a huge carp and the reason they have that is because in the edo period in the 16th century there were these huge earthquakes that rocked japan mm-hmm. And it was blamed on the carp fishermen who it was said had fished too much and upset the great carp in the ocean. And so the carp came up out of the water and smashed the land. Mm-hmm. So, or, you know, you have on ambulances in the West, you have the stick with the snake on from the right. Old Testament you know, and this kind of stick that becomes both a healing and, and a kind of maybe not quite so monstrous, but you, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's interesting how, like, we've had this revival of interest in things like zombies and vampires and even, you know, dragons, you know, like Game of Thrones and mm-hmm. uh, witches and all those kind of things. Of course, they get reconfigured, you know, and they also get detached from their history, I mean, the zombies of The Walking Dead are very different to the zombies of Haitian voodoo and African voodoo culture where they came from, which was really a state of spiritual trance. But in the 21st century, zombies are now sort of senseless humans who cannibalize other humans for blood to live. You know what I mean? And they represent, I think, our fear of plague and pestilence and all that kind of stuff so that's the book and also my sort of interpretation of how I think that plays out and all of that is really so that we can sort of reflect on and think through (laughs) the complications of 
our sort of cultural unconscious, you know, mm-hmm. what do we worship? What are our gods? People are quick to say, oh, we don't believe in, in God anymore. But we, well, we don't perhaps believe in this particular God. But like I said, there are things that cause awe and wonder mm-hmm. and, and things that we kneel down and desire to connect connect with. Now, for some people, they go, oh, well, that's not God. Well, I personally think it's a similar mechanism within the unconscious right. because it means that we direct our attention towards something other and outside of ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. And again, to sort of dismiss that is to kind of miss the point anyway. <laughs> because what we're missing is that we we don't exist in this single cell, totally isolated. I am my own independent person. I don't have anything. I, you know, I just make my own choices and my own decisions, and and I do and don't think this and that. And we don't realize how embedded we are in these kind of mechanisms mm-hmm. those and, and others so that was a very long-winded breakdown perfect. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. that was almost as long as a talk <laughs> it's great because it gives a, a nice full answer of, of what we're going to be talking about and I mean we've had many talks before and you know that I'm a very internal person and so when we start to talk about strangers specifically you know, I'm always interested in the idea of the stranger that lives within the self. And you had said something in your talk where rather than trying to kill the stranger or ostracize the stranger, maybe there is a way to inspire awe and that curiosity that you were speaking of earlier. How do you kind of cultivate that awe and curiosity when dealing with either the stranger in yourself or the other outside of you? Yeah, well, I mean, the other outside of us which I think is a really important figure because we're, we're really dealing at the moment with our fears of the stranger. Right. I mean, if you think about where the Western world particularly is, but not exclusively as we're sort of getting deeper into the 21st century and, and you think about the rise of nationalism and xenophobia and this real kind of isolationist nationalism based on a sense of our supposed exceptionalism you know Mm. and we want to keep everybody out and the classic line is you know we've got to stop immigration because people are coming in and stealing our jobs and you know we don't want that and all those kind of things and I think there's a fundamental flaw and a real danger firstly because we've always been challenged with what to do with the stranger and you know i mean america particularly it's a country made up of what once strangers you know mm-hmm. and you know, the open-armed invitation of people was a fundamental way in which american society particularly came of age but i think for a lot of you know the more like european western nations that had more sort of involvement in the colonization of the world they also had to deal with strangers and stuff coming but we're in this weird position where we are trying to keep everybody away and going and of course at extremes it becomes just pure abhorrent racism Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it gets reduced down to sort of 
things like skin color and language culture and stuff like that but but i think because of the the way the world is you know i think there are more people moving around the world right now because of you know whether it's for political reasons or whether they're economic immigrants or, or whatever more and more people are flooding out of their countries because of all kinds of reasons and trying to find their way to other countries and that's not going to go away and how we understand the stranger and what we do with the stranger i think is becoming increasingly both problematic but also important and mm-hmm. you can resist the stranger which is a form of rejection which really i think ultimately is sort of violation of what it means to be a human being yeah. to sort of push people away and it's interesting in how many cultures hospitality used to play a vital role and how that gets justified as not feasible anymore oh we can't take any more ref- that's what they say over here we can't take any more refugees you know we just don't have the bandwidth well of course you do mm-hmm. of course we do actually but it all depends on how you view the stranger and mm-hmm. so you you can reject the stranger you can also attempt to colonize the stranger to eradicate difference yeah or you can accept the stranger for who they are and find new ways to live together and i think for me in my life i've been i think i've been lucky and a part of it i think is choices that i made but i've always been involved in different sorts of environments mm-hmm. and feel very comfortable but I like difference actually I, I actually chase it like I was saying to somebody well I was talking to my friends and they live in southern Italy in Calabria mm-hmm. Calabria is very interesting because southern Italy is very different to the north it's much poorer it's kind of more probably like it, people think Italian places might be you know a little bit run down on the edges you know mm-hmm. very kind of simple life but about 15 miles from where we were this, one of my friends was telling me that there's a, a village in the sort of mountains and in about the 1600s a group of albanian people moved there mm. and in that village or that town today the main language is still albanian and mm. all the street signs are in both italian and albanian So there you have an interesting example of a group of people, a sort of cultural group who are living within a lot, you know, and they're they're Italians now, Mm -hmm. but they speak Albanian. There's like Albanian food. And there are a lot of similarities between Albania and Italy, I think. But nonetheless, you know, there's that way of doing it. And I think for me, one of my favorite places to have been fortunate enough to visit is Japan just mm-hmm. because everything about it is in a sense other and strange i mean the first time i i went to japan was quite some time ago and there weren't as many western people going there at the time and i literally had people and my hair was a lot longer than it even is now and i had people sort of coming up to me on the street and just stroking my hair just like sort of amazed because you know yeah. Most people, I would say probably in Japan, 99% of Japanese people would seem to all have the same color hair. Mm-hmm. So sort of gingery blonde hair kind of stuck out a little bit, you know. But mm-hmm. what I loved about it 
was it was not a language that I was familiar with, a written language. You know, it's an entirely different alphabet. You know, they have characters, not mm-hmm. letters like like we do and stuff. And I love going to a place like that where the disorientation of otherness and difference forces you to engage in a, a whole other level of sort of engagement with the place. And I think I've always just thrived, really. I like meeting people who are different. Mm-hmm. As I said to you before we talked, I've got more friends in Italy than I have after living in London for four years because I'm not the most outgoing person. I'm actually quite shy and pretty introvert in spite of all the things that I do public on sort yeah. of But that's different, you know. But I love sort of, you know, I have friends that are in fashion, in music, in theology, in philosophy, in psychoanalysis, that work in coffee shops, you know what I mean? And right. it's all so interesting to me. And in a sense, I've kind of cultivated a life amongst the stranger. Mm. But I find that fascinating. There's so much to consider. And the first lesson, of course, is the way we live it's the way we live. It's not the way everybody lives. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it's like, it's one of the things that I really don't like about comparative religious courses. Okay. Where it's like, well, you know, we all have the golden rule. So aren't we all really worshipping the same God, you know? Well, no. The, the simple answer is actually no. And to try and make that so that you don't have to deal with the particularity and the peculiarity and the otherness and the strangeness and the foreignness, if you like. And the difference is to forget that we are all those things to that person. Right. (laughs) We're just as different to them as they are to us. And if we don't understand that, it's because we have a very unhealthy view of who we are in in the world, I think. Mm. Particularly when when you go around, like, everybody kept apologizing to me for their bad English. In the meantime, I can barely ask for a cappuccino or where the bathroom is in Italian. And they're they're making incredible effort, and they presume that they must, because essentially they kind of must, because we're very fortunate to speak the language that basically connects the world Mm -hmm. and demands that people speak it and and I'm always amazed by that you know I was always amazed how dismissive we can be of immigrants at times you know oh and they're doing you know menial jobs that we don't want to do but they probably speak five languages right exactly at least a couple couple, and I'm like oh and we're so great we can barely speak English properly (laughs) right if we can speak English properly you know what I mean exactly exactly and that's one of the things that I realized when I did a lot of traveling in Asia is just this profound like English privilege where a lot of the signage was in the language of the country I was in and in English and it was just kind of like what what is this where we've kind of just assume it I mean, and yeah, I mean, and I know that a lot of that has to do with the remnants of like things like the British Empire and stuff like that, because, mm-hmm. you know, we left, unfortunately, <laughs> scars and marks on a lot of the world in, in, in many ways. But I don't know. I think there are ways of acknowledging difference and strangeness, because we're, we're all strange. Completely. I mean, we're strangers to ourselves, I think, you know, mm-hmm. like. We've read 
a lot of Adam Phillips books together, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's the person I think I am, there's, there's the person that I might be, and then there's mm. the person I probably am that I'm never going to really discover, you know, and the one I present to you is probably, you know, different than one I'm going to be tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so be curious and embrace the complexity of otherness. And that doesn't mean, you know, it's not, a, doesn't make it a bed of roses, but nor does demonizing vilifying or colonizing people right. you know, trying to make people like you so you feel safe because that's what we want to do right we want to feel safe because we think there's safety in being us mm-hmm. which might be the biggest mistake we make of yeah. all yeah and you know that kind of translates well into the topic of monsters where when we begin to fear the other fear the stranger they can turn into this monster where we're projecting all of even our own unconscious fears onto them and there was an interesting point that you made and I think you were talking about Dracula but it also kind of reminds me like the Joker in the Batman series where the monster or the villain is usually dressed up in the attire of an older age, a former yeah. age, where we're forced to encounter the things that we've buried, the things that we're scared of from our past. And so how do you engage with that aspect of the monster being historical, if you will? Well, I think the monster comes, you know, if the stranger comes from the outside, mm-hmm. The monster comes from the inside. Mm. The monster is the things that we fear about ourselves and our world. And uh, I think we dress them at least in fantasy, you know, in things like the Joker. There's always that. Yeah, I always remember, you know, when Jack Nicholson played the Joker in Mm. one of the early Batman movies, you know, it's like he wore clothes that were exaggerated normal clothes you know bright purple suit you know with huge shoulders and over the almost like a zoot suit and as you say from a slightly different period um, enough to kind of make them stand out and, and at once be comical but also deadly I mean that's where the comic book monster comes into play and then I think you get the more literary things like vampires and Frankenstein I think I talked about vampires as this kind of threat to the Victorian or pre-Victorian you know that 18th and 19th century version of English maleness because vampires usually in at least in the initial stories always went after the defenseless women Mm -hmm. they seduced them you know, and they went for uh, the neck, which was, if you think about, you know, dress at the time, the sort of neck and the, uh, and the top of the chest above the breast was, was an erotic place, you know. And so the vampire goes, not only because there's, you know, the, the vein there, the jugular vein, but, but also it's this sensual, almost statue-like alabaster mm. <laughs> neck, you know what I mean? And the vampire is dressed and elegant and charming and seductive and steals away all of the things that the 
sort of men of that period prized in their women, you know, virtue, chastity, calm, because turn them into, you know, they're seduced by vampires and they become these erotic, bloodthirsty creatures that kill, you know what I mean? They're not passive anymore. You know, there was a passivity that was required of women. So the monsters take different forms, but, but they're always a symbol of a threat to order, you know, so the joker. And there's a long history of jokers as the symbolic figure that brings chaos into the equation to make you consider your moral or ethical choices in life, whether it's Batman or, or vampire. There's, you know, what's raised up are the things that you hold dear that are threatened. And, you know, and then you have things, I mean, you think about, COVID and one of our biggest sort of fears is the runaway plague, Mm. you know, the kind of weird bacterial monster. I mean, you remember the pictures they kept posting and, you know, newspapers and stuff of the COVID cell, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. kind of like a sponge with the bits coming out of it, you know what I mean? Yeah. There was a great picture of these Indian policemen on horseback that had helmets with like COVID. They were like patrolling to keep people away, you know. And and so we also have like bacterial monsters, you know, and they get animated. And but they represent our fear or the monsters, the the hacker that destroys. Well, I, I don't know. Without getting too political, somebody like Julian Assange. Mm. A monster. Why is he a monster? Because he exposed <laughs> he exposed secrets. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, monsters do that as well because they expose what we're afraid of, but they also expose our own complex relationship with reality. And I think they get dressed up as human, superhuman, more than human. You know, there's quite often... And you go all the way back to the Greeks, you know, and you get the Minotaur and all those kind of creatures that are half human, half animal, you know, aliens. You know, it's like really funny. Aliens are are always sort of, we presume they're just going to be a weird version of humans. (laughs) Slimier, you know what I mean? You know, inside our skin or whatever. And when they come out, they're going to be, you know, really horrible. Or even like that movie, the animated movie, Monsters Incorporated. We try and make them sort of cheerful and happy. But if you look at them, it's like, wow, that's a weird set of uh, creatures that we've got there. You know, and that's a way that I think it's interesting to me that with kids, because kids are quite often afraid of things. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how children sometimes seem to almost know that monsters exist without being told that they exist. And then they get education in, <laughs> in monsters you know and you get the kids that are afraid of the dark and see if they leave a nightlight on or mm-hmm. you know they always want to check under the bed and noises bug them and stuff I mean we have those those fears and I, and I think the monsters particularly get at our if you like our existential insecurities about life because they challenge our certainties right exactly. the monster the monster comes along and powerfully interrupts the world that we've planned out <laughs> with, <laughs> right. with chaos. Mm-hmm. 
and I do think that since the AIDS crisis, we have made certain diseases monstrous and then made monsters of the strangers who fall prey to that monstrous thing. Right. So you, th- you think about, well, I'm older than you. So I remember the AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. how horrendous it was, because it was a time when there was an incredible amount of bias and prejudice and outright hatred towards homosexuals against mm-hmm. gays, you know. And the idea that it was the gay disease was a hugely prevalent thing and again what is that well that's i think that's actually a fear of our own sexuality i always think that our prejudices expose what our fears are and i think our big fear the heterosexual fear is we're not heterosexual (laughs) (laughs) yep (laughs) i mean i do think to some degree that i don't think that's brain surgery but but i I think that's how i've always seen it you know it's like oh yeah we're afraid of our own sexuality because let's just face it, you know, that is a minefield in and of And we turn it into an even more of a minefield because we, again, to go back to complications, the complication of human sexuality Mm -hmm. is something that we constantly and continually try to simplify. Yeah. And one of the interesting things to me about now is the way in which the horizon of complication has been stretched to cover a bit more territory. Mm -hmm. You know, I I was talking to somebody recently and they made an interesting comment. They deal with a lot of teenagers and their comment, maybe this could be taken the wrong way. And I I know they didn't mean it this way. and, And I certainly don't feel this way. They said, but the great thing about right now is that in some ways you can put your personal complications about sexuality into more categories than you used to be able to. There are more places to put it and there's more acceptance of one's personal complications about their own sexuality. It's less binary. So you've got more room to experiment and more people are willing to go, oh, look, yeah, of course, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you like men and women or you like this or that, so. Right, right. <laughs> Whereas, you know, there are still lots and lots of people that want to control that. Mm-hmm. And I always think that's because you want to control your, your own desire. Yeah. And that's one way of controlling ourselves, of course, is to limit. Mm-hmm to forbid, but then there's always what's unforbidden (laughs) and also the temptation of what's forbidden becomes a looming challenge. But I do think that when we demonize things and turn people into monsters and create estrangement, it's usually because we're trying to deny and escape from our own deep-seated uncertainty about who we really are. Right, right. It's sad, but it's also, and I think that that might be, to go back to the book, I think that's one of the things probably 
that I think Richard Kearney wants to get at, to see not, not just to identify the stranger or the god or the monster, yeah. but to identify ourselves in the stranger and the god and the monster. Whenever somebody gets really zealous about something, and I think I had to come to terms with this in my sort of whole relationship with religion, mm-hmm. is I sort of realized that my attempt to embrace a kind of binary view of reality, which was really going against the complexity that I was already living in, but it felt like a way to handle some things that I didn't feel capable of handling at the time or didn't even know I needed to handle. But it was like it just became too simplistic for me to go, well, you know, this person is in, that person's out because they made this choice or this decision or this person is allowed access because they've got, you know, this set of, you know, they've got this down, but this person can't because they haven't. You know what I mean? And it's, and really what it comes down to is I don't know how to handle you if you're not like me. Yeah. It's really that simple, which is an immensely insecure way to function as a human being. And yet most of us spend an awful lot of time living there. We should just learn to relax a little bit and just go, yeah, that's what makes life wonderful. (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. And I think that as we begin to just accept the fact that there are aspects of ourselves that are unfamiliar, uncertain, and like you said, just relax into all that life has to offer. There's like a liberation in that. There's a freedom in just letting life be what it is. Yeah, and you don't have to, uh, you don't, well, we won't anyway. We can't answer all the questions that we have for our our lives. Mm -hmm. So we have to work out what questions we're going to give attention to. And, you know, I think, and I think that's always, again, a complication because not everybody has the same interests or desires in life or even the same questions. You know, mm-hmm. again, take sexuality. For some people, it's mostly settled. I mean, settled to whatever degree they're yeah. comfortable. You know, you can unsettle it pretty much, but you know what I mean? <laughs> but for some people, for some people, it's just a minefield of stuff that they have to explore to work out because it, the way they're made up in life that's uh, an issue for somebody else. It's uh, another thing, you know. Some people are extremely externally anxious. Mm-hmm. Other people aren't. Doesn't mean they don't have anxiety, but it's not like a something that needs to be addressed in the same way. And so, if it is, you have to sort of work out. All right. Well, then I need to pay attention to this, and I, I don't. I mean, one of the liberating things for me in my whole sort of theological trajectory was just going through a list of things that actually didn't interest me that I wasn't interested in talking about when it came to sort of religion you know because mm-hmm. you're told you should be really concerned about all these things and then I was yeah. like ah yeah god not so much yeah I mean it was really a big thing for me because I realized that my whole sort of entry into the world of religion which happened sort of outside of officialdom mm-hmm. was based on really more a desire 
to come to terms with my own humanity than it was to really strike some deal with a perceived divinity. And so I just sort of started to go through a list and reduced, or not reduced, focused on a set of questions that were important to me about the nature of belief or faith and stuff like that. Same with life, really. I mean, I try and focus my curiosity. I'm interested in lots and lots of things, but I try and prioritize certain things over others because A, there's not enough time. (laughs) (laughs) And um, B, you can't do everything. And yeah, I don't know, I'm waffling. (laughs) You're fine. And then on the idea of God, I know in your book, Sex, God, and Rock and Roll, you do say that moving towards God might ultimately be a move towards the depth of oneself. And so when we are talking about God as this deified other who we worship, what does that look like or mean for you to also be a move toward the depth of the self? Yeah, well, I think what I was trying to say, if I remember, and it's been a while, so I probably changed my mind a little bit, but I think what I was trying to say is that I think there is something in the pursuit of meaning, because I think that's really what the pursuit of God or, or the discovery of God is connected to. You know, we're trying to find some sense of how this thing called life has any shape to it. That mm-hmm. really what that gets at is a desire to understand really what it means to be human mm-hmm. and if you think about the fact that religious writings were written by humans i mean right. it, except for certain books that showed up in <laughs> phone books in the uh, wherever you know but, but in general you know religious writings are written by people and it's really a story of how people understand themselves in relation to the cosmos and and to being on earth Mm. and i think that for me the verticality that whole kind of idea that you know humans are here and you kind of ascend through this whole litany of things to the overarching idea of some figure god whatever making all this happen is best understood actually through horizontal experiences through the human experience so it doesn't mean i mean i mean i don't believe in god Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that i don't leave room for the inexplicable or the unexplained or the possibility that there are things so i'm not really agnostic i don't really regard myself i'm sort of i'm a theistic atheistic agnostic unbelieving believer I'm interested in what it means to be human. And Mm -hmm. and I think the pursuit of God is quite often part of that equation that can become a distraction because a lot of contemporary religion spends an awful lot of time telling us what we should be focusing on in terms of God, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and minimizes a little bit. I mean, it's interesting to me that apparent Christian virtue and almost fascistic nationalism 
can sometimes go hand in hand. Yeah. You can be really resistant to the other in the name of God. I find that almost an impossibility. Right. And so many people seem to be able to rationalize that one. Mm-hmm. Like really well. And I know we're really good at rationalizing. I mean, that this human gift is <laughs> to rationalize. <laughs> to rationalize and find a, a nice answer to an impossible scenario. But I do think it's interesting that sometimes the most ardent of religious people can become the harshest towards otherness mm-hmm. in the name of God, mm-hmm. in the name of God. And I think that's because we miss, miss the point of otherness and difference, both in ourselves and in the people that we encounter. Right. So it's interesting. For me, I think I'm very, very interested in how people express their humanity. And there's a long history of religion as a component of that. Mm-hmm. And I also think that a lot of people underestimate both the importance and the presence of the religious impulse in our world. There's a lot of people who are a little too certain of their atheistic tendency. Right. A little too sure that that's just a myth. And to them, I would point them in the direction of, you know, Kirani's book. We all kneel before something and we kill off old gods, but new ones get resurrected. I mean, I mean even the, the sort of famous atheist go-to Nietzsche, you know, God is dead. Yeah. Well, that's not the whole story. That's not exactly what he said. It's like, you know, God is dead and we have killed him. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say, you know, what have we done? And watch out because there are going to be a whole lot of other gods coming. So, you know, if you're going to quote Nietzsche, you've got to kind of read Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit more than a slogan, you know, that God is dead. Yes, that particular iteration of God was killed off and killed off by us. But Nietzsche also said that, you know, it was a madman that made that declaration. But the question, of course, that gets raised is, who's mad in that equation? Mm. The one who announces the death of God or those who killed God? Mm-hmm. And those mm-hmm. who are blind to the emergence of other gods to take that God's place. I mean, I think for a lot of people, Science is their religion. They have faith in science. I mean, people say that. I have faith in science. I don't have faith in God. Well, the commonality in that is that you've got faith. Exactly. You believe in something. And I get, you know, that's a very broad stroke. I get that. And I Mm -hmm. I realize that's a very naive interpretation of what people mean. But nonetheless, we're still operating. Science opens us up to uncertainty in a way I think that God is meant to, rather than closing all of the doors i think the idea of god is to open us up mm-hmm. to the magnificent incomprehensibility of what it means to be human and the beauty and perhaps sometimes the terror right <laughs> <laughs> the terror of that you know because sometimes it feels terrible to be uh, and terrifying mm-hmm. to be alive in the world mm-hmm. well thank you so much for this this was brilliant conversation and if you want to be found <laughs> how would uh, how can people reach out to you um well uh, you know i spend a probably an inordinate amount of time on instagram <laughs> <laughs> i have 
my Instagram, you know, UK bloke. I should probably change that like because that was when I was living in America. But I also, I do have a Patreon where I try and do more thoughtful things. But I don't know. You can find me out there somewhere. Yeah. And I'll link it all in the show notes. So thank you so much for this. It's always great to talk to you. I'm glad we got to do this. Usually our conversations are always with like loads of groups of people. So it's always great to chat to you in one-on-one situations because you are one of my favorite humans. Thank you. I feel the same way about you. Just every time I talk to you, I just feel like I've have so much more to think about and ponder and it's just <laughs> <laughs> my gift is complication remember complication <laughs> <laughs> just before we go i used to teach at a theological school and i used to start almost every course i taught with a little statement and i said here's the one thing that i'm going to tell you over and over and over again it's complicated mm-hmm complicated and it's very important that you understand that it's complicated we need to start from the complexity yeah and see what we can do with it so you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate it (laughs) and if you want to reach out to me you can find me on instagram at mental magic podcast with a period after each word and thank you as always for listening bye